Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. take a look at the encounters of Jesus in the book of John. We're going to go to chapter 2. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, you'll be a lot closer to where we're going to start. I think we might have some music still on up up in the rafter somewhere. Thank you. All right, this is Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus, and uh, it follows on the heels of his first uh, ministry occasion in Jerusalem. We know that he was there uh, when he was 12 years old, and he was meeting with the doctors of theology and the doctors of law and amazing them. And uh, remember, Mary got a little freaked out when she realized she lost salvation's plan uh, in Jerusalem or left him behind. And uh, they caught up with him, and he was already about his father's business. But here in John chapter 2, uh, we have him at his first clearing of the temples. Did you know that, that Jesus cleared the temple not once, but twice? If you follow out the uh, the gospel stories, you find that he did once at the beginning of his ministry, and apparently you can't clean the church just once. You got to do it again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And so he's uh, he's got to come back near the end of his ministry after that uh, three years, and uh, there he uh, cleanses the temple again. But not everybody understands what all of that is about, and it tells us in chapter two, verse twenty-three. We'll we'll kind of catch this thought because I think what John is doing is he's leading us into a series of conversations that are going to happen with people. When he says, now while he was in Jerusalem, this is chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. Okay, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people, and he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So here... Uh, we have a statement about what's going on there is that some people put belief in him, but it must have been some kind of a superficial belief because we're hearing that even though some believed in him, uh, he wasn't ready to entrust himself to them because he knew what was in people. Do you know that Jesus knows what's going on in us? He does. And and he knows when uh, we're saying little prayers in order to get out of a situation, and he knows when we're being sincere. He knows when our prayer of faith are superficial prayers, and he knows when it's legitimate trust in him. Uh, he can see the difference. And so I think it's always wise uh, to not play games with God and always pray sincerely, even sometimes if that prayer is negative. Uh, I, I I would encourage you, I know that, that uh, there's teaching out there that's completely against this, but if you read the Psalms, you find very honest prayers with God. And the Psalms give us example about how to pray. That when we, we pray, we need to pray sincerely. After all, God knows what's in our heart anyway. And I think he's more disappointed with our, with our insincerity than he is if we've got the, perhaps the wrong perspective with him. What I see in the Psalms is that people, when they pray 
uh, difficult prayers, when they pray honest prayers, is near the end of the prayer, by the time they prayed it, God's changed their heart. And that's the whole point of praying in that way, is that when you bring out your honest needs before God, in the midst of that, He can change our heart. All of that to uh, say He knows what's in the hearts of each one of us. And so then I think it leads into a series of three stories where it talks about, it kind of illustrates this, that that Jesus knows what's in the heart. And the first one is with Nicodemus. And we see that when Jesus knows what's in the heart, he knows the level of faith that an individual has. This is uh, There's a difference between uh, believing things about Jesus and entrusting yourself to Jesus. Do you know that difference? Okay, It's one thing to have kind of a creedal Christianity in which we say, well, I know what the creeds say, and I believe the creeds, and we give mental assent to that, like, yes, that those things are true. We believe those propositions. It's another thing to, to say, I agree with those, but I believe the person. Okay? I'm not against creedal Christianity. I'm against with it only being creedal. Do you understand the difference in that? There's nothing wrong with having the creeds and even saying the creeds. What's wrong is when we say the creeds and we don't let our lives be transformed by those truths. Because if God is really, if Jesus is really God's son, he demands and deserves our trust. So there's a difference between uh, believing things about Jesus and entrusting yourself to him. Some people, it seems in these last verses of chapter 2, believed things about Jesus. Like they were convinced that he was the Messiah. But it was another thing to believe in terms of, I'm putting my hopes in you. And, you know, that's a tricky thing, too. When you put your hopes in Jesus, your hopes are subject to transformation by him. And you can see that some of the people that were around during Jesus' day hoped that he would take on the, the role of a military messiah, something that existed in the time of the judges. Uh, or maybe like a Davidic figure. He was the son of David. Maybe he was going to do what David did and give Israel rest from their enemies on every side. You know, when uh, the Bible uses, gives them rest from their enemies on every side, it means that they were dominant, that they were conquering their enemies, that they overcame, that they were really living in the sweet spot of the plan of God. And so uh, they ex- there's a lot of people that expected when Jesus came, he was going to be that military Messiah or a political kind of Messiah or uh, some kind of a Davidic figure that would come and exalt Israel. In other words, their hopes were, what I think, short-sighted, and they lacked depth. Okay, And my favorite example of this uh, is our mountains over here. On some days, you look at those, and it looks like it's a painting, doesn't it? It looks like there's a one-dimensional painting there. But you know, if you get up in those mountains, before you know it, you look back, and you're ascending higher and higher, and there's, there's depth to that. There's ups and downs and rivers and valleys and uh, peaks, and there's depth to that. In fact, I think it goes something like 30 miles back there of different heights and depths. But we see a, a flat canvas. And I think a lot of people, when they were looking at Jesus, they were, they were looking at a, a flat picture of what he was like, not realizing what he really offers us is better than what we could have ever hoped for. Like if we're thinking in terms of a political kingdom here and now, what Jesus is offering us is spiritual, and it goes far beyond that. Will he establish a kingdom on earth? Yes, he will. But what he offers is so much bigger 
than that, so much bigger than simply restored Israel. This is Jesus bringing all flesh under his lordship. And not everybody understood all of that. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, if you look up Nicodemus in there, um, it says this. It says, Nicodemus shared the Jewish expectation of a political Messiah who would deliver his people from the Romans. He was perplexed at Jesus' teaching about the spiritual nature of his kingdom. Nicodemus's cautiousness kept him from revealing open, openly his interest in Jesus and his teachings. But his curiosity compelled him to seek to know him more. So if you look at uh, Nicodemus here, I'm sure you wanted to see my little uh, antivirus alert. Okay, If you look at Nicodemus here, I think the first thing you'll see, and that's not it. I need to jump back here. Okay, the first thing you'll see uh, when you look at Nicodemus is this, this discourse on the new birth. But you see him two other times in, in the book of John. In fact, the book of John may be the only place that Nicodemus is found. You see him then on the last day of the feast. We referred to that last week. You remember people were saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything, any prophet ever come out of Galilee? And, of course, this was after Jesus had just said, um, come to me and receive the living water. And then uh, the religious leaders started to put Jesus down. And Nicodemus stood up for him and said, we should at least give this guy a trial if we're intending to prosecute him. You know, if we're intending to do him harm, we should at least give him a trial. And then he got the uh, rare insult of, you must be a Galilean too, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin a Pharisee, okay? And then we see at the burial of Jesus that he's contributing to that in John nineteen thirty-eight through 42. Um, this is uh, found only in John. So we have here Nicodemus, and uh, he encounters Jesus, and the conversation goes something like this. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, verse 1 of chapter 3, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. You should read there Sanhedrin. Okay, everybody know what the Sanhedrin is? So uh, we have in our, our nation the Supreme Court. That's the highest. Okay, for, um, for the Jewish people in that day, they had 70 elders or 72, depending on how people understood this, 70 elders. And this was a uh, replica of when God appointed Moses 70, or Moses appointed 70 elders. Okay, so this is like the, the ruling judges for the nation of Israel. And it was made up in Jesus' day partly of Pharisees and partly of Sadducees. And the Pharisees had a certain uh, thing about them. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the miracles. They believed beyond the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed in the prophets and the writings. And they were very strict in their obedience to the law. All of those things are typical of Pharisees. So we're finding out a lot about Nicodemus. He has high religious position in the nation. Okay, he's one of the elites, and not only that, but he only got there probably because of his great reputation for obedience to the law. So this is what Nicodemus is like. It goes on to say in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night, came to Jesus at night. I would just uh, encourage you, keep that tucked away in the back of your mind, because that's going to come up a little bit later. He came to Jesus at night, and he said, 
Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you're doing uh, if God were not with him. Okay? Do you remember that what it just said in chapter 2? That some people believed in Jesus, but he didn't entrust them, himself to them because he knew it was in their hearts. Okay? So it seems to me here that Nicodemus may fit that category. Uh, if you look at verse 1 there in the NIV, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. But the, the Greek word that stands behind now can also be but. So this could be a positive example. It could be a negative example. But we need to look into it a little bit more. Nicodemus uh, said, I know that you've come from God. But, but he's, a, he's hesitant to commit himself fully to the purpose. He's coming to Jesus at night. Why would somebody do that? What's that? So it's so they can't be seen, right? Why come at night? Uh, so that people who are running around the day don't see who you are, what you're, what you're about. And so he's probably inquiring of Jesus to find out more, but he doesn't want to risk his reputation as a leader of Israel. And so he said he's he's throwing out there. I really do believe Jesus that you are you are the Messiah. Okay, so. He's got this belief, but he's not quite ready to entrust himself fully to Christ. And I think it's really important for us to understand that, dif- that difference because uh, I know for me, I know for a lot of others, they come to a point, a point where they make a uh, mental decision that they're going to, they believe Jesus is who he said he is, but they don't really put their life behind it. Okay? Here's how I think Christianity works. You vote with your life. You vote with your life, not with saying a prayer of agreement. You vote with your life. Do you believe Jesus is real? Because uh, the way that uh, the Jews understood belief is that belief is not divided into thinking and doing. Belief is the whole person going the direction and following after God. So do we entrust our life to him or don't we? So he says, I believe that you're the Messiah. Nobody could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And you remember it says back here, uh, he knew all people. He knew it was in their hearts. Jesus seems to change the subject. Like if you trying to follow the logic of this whole thing, it's hard to do. Nicodemus has just said, I believe this about you, Jesus. And then Jesus seems to jump to in a different direction, or maybe he skips ahead in the conversation. And I think the reason for that is, is he knows what's in Nicodemus's heart. You can't just, you can't just come to a place of decision. There has to be something else that takes place for there to be true salvation. Do you understand that salvation is not just behavioral reform? There has to be a supernatural thing that happens for us to enter the kingdom. Are you with me on that? Say yes. Because of what we're about ready to hear, it's important that we know that because it's not just I'm changing my behavior. We're getting on board and we're letting God do something supernatural in us. I think that's why this is so significant because the next thing Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Here I think what Jesus has done is he displays discernment about what was in the heart of people. And so he answers a question 
which Nicodemus hasn't yet asked. How do I how do I enter the kingdom? How do we enter the kingdom? If you're this kind of Messiah, how does the kingdom come? And what Jesus does, he jumps ahead and he says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to be born again, just like everybody else. And so this sends this teacher of the law into kind of a mental spin. Like he doesn't know what all of this means, and so he's going to ask a series of questions. Verse 4, how can, it, how can someone be born when they're old? How can somebody be born when they're old? Anybody, when you read your Bible, do you laugh a little bit at some of the things that are said? Not irreverently, but because you're following how this conversation is going. How can somebody be born when they're old? You're telling me we all have to be born again. Well, I'm, doing, I'm an old guy. You don't get to be on the Sanhedrin if you're, you know, fresh out of college. You get to be in the Sanhedrin when you've proven through a life of living for God that you follow the law, that you truly are honorable, that you can make good decisions. That's how you get there. And so he's an older guy. He's proven it with his life. How can somebody be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born, right? So Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus shows some discernment by making a statement here and saying that you must be born again. So I'd like to say here, before we go any further, a couple things about Nicodemus that's not up here on the screen. Uh, The first thing that he shows us is that it's possible to know a lot about the Bible and at the same time miss its meaning, okay? Because Jesus says something here as he asks this question. Uh, Verse 10, he says, how can this be? Uh, In verse 9 and verse 10, he says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. So what do you think... uh, what do you think that means about Nicodemus if he's a teacher of Israel? And somebody pointed out here, I think Merrill Tinney in his commentary, that when it says Israel's teacher, it doesn't say you're a teacher of Israel. It uses the definite article, you are the teacher of Israel. Whatever that means. I don't know if this is a hyperbole, but Jesus is recognizing that Nicodemus is one of those who knows, knows the Bible best. Okay. He misses a meaning. How can, he, how can that happen? He misses some kind of a meaning. And I think that's the first thing is that uh, it's possible to know a lot about the Bible and miss the meaning. Don't think that uh, at the same time that excuses us from studying the Bible. Because I know growing up and when you're Pentecostal, sometimes we say, well, we just need the Spirit. We don't need knowledge and, and all of that. And, and sometimes we hear these things like, you can know a lot about the Bible and miss its meaning that we go to the polar extreme on the opposite side and say, well, I just don't have to know that much. And that's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, I would suggest to you that Jesus knew the Bible better than Nicodemus. Would you agree? I mean, that's obvious, isn't it? He's the author. He knows the Bible. And it's not bad to know the Bible. The problem is, is missing the meaning or missing what Jesus is trying to do. 
So we don't throw out Bible study. We love Bible study. Let's strive to know what it means. Let's strive to know what God is saying through it. I think Nicodemus misunderstood here the spiritual nature of Jesus' kingdom, along with many other people. So the danger is not knowing too much of the Bible. It's knowing too little of Jesus. That's the danger. Second thing Nicodemus illustrates for us is it's possible to be convinced of the truth about Jesus and still hesitate to make the sacrifice. And I, I think a good word for that is to balk. You guys know the word balk? Anybody watch baseball or follow baseball? You know what a balk is? And I know there's a wider range of meaning, but because I played baseball as a kid, this is what I remember. A balk is what happens when the pitcher acts like he's going to throw towards home plate or first base in some situations, but then he doesn't really throw the ball. So it's the motion of going to start, but it, there's no follow-through on it. And I think what Nicodemus is doing here and coming at night is that he's balking a little bit at following Jesus. Like, I really want to, and the motion is there, but he doesn't follow through. And I think that's sometimes what we do is we'll, we'll make uh, great commitments to God. Like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow you. I'm really going to trust you this time. And then when it's really time and the money is on the line, we balk at it. And so he doesn't follow through. And so I think Nicodemus illustrates those two things. He knows the Bible, but he misses its meaning. He's convinced of the truth about Jesus, but he's not really trusting in Jesus. Okay, that's where he's at at this present moment. I think probably that changes in time because we hear him reiterated through the story and not in a negative light, in a positive light. The word again here, when it says, a person must be born again, verse 3, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I'd like to point this out. Just It's kind of fascinating because John sometimes does this. He uses words that have a double meaning. And uh, I, don't, I don't like to suggest this because I don't think we need to play loose with Scripture and try to make it stretch and fit whatever we want. But I think here is a case where he's trying to draw on two ideas at the same time. Because the word again can also mean from above. If you have a strong concordance, you can look this up. Uh, in James 1.17, anybody know James 1.17 from memory? I'll start you off. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. Okay, so when it says from above there, it uses the exact same Greek word as again here. So born again and there from above. If you have a strong concordance, it's, uh, it's New Testament. It's the Greek 509, if you want to look that up. It's the same word. And so John's suggestion here is to be born again also means to be born from above. It's not just an earthly natural birth. It's a spiritual birth that needs to take place here. So he's encouraging people to be born again. So notice uh, Nicodemus asks a question, how can somebody be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. So now what he's done is he's used two parallel phrases that he intends to mean the same thing, okay? Born again or born from above equals born of water and of the Spirit. Are you with me on that? You follow that? That he's equating these two things. 
Being born again is being born of water and of the Spirit. That's such a strange thing to say. Water and the Spirit. And this has been interpreted in various ways. The first way that we sometimes hear this interpreted is um, water and the Spirit. And this is especially probably popular among some Pentecostals. Uh, that one means water baptism and the other means spirit baptism. You've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. You've got to be baptized in water and baptized in the Spirit. And uh, the baptism by water, we should understand, doesn't save. Uh, I want to encourage you. We're going to be having a baptism Sunday. We are. So you're going to want to be here for that. It's going to be great. It's always a great time. But we don't believe in baptismal regeneration, meaning that you're not saved until you get baptized. We believe that you're saved by the work of Jesus, and baptism symbolizes the work that God's already done. Okay, so we're not born again through water baptism. Water baptism may be a symbol, but it's not that. And then I, I believe that the Scripture points to the fact that spirit baptism, at least the way that Luke uses it, is talking about spirit empowerment, and that, a lot of times, is associated, especially in the book of Acts, that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, a gift comes with that, the gift of tongues. And so I disagree with the idea that you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to go to heaven. There are some denominations that teach that. You have to speak in tongues to go to heaven. No. You have to be born again. So I'm going to discount that first one, and I hope you'll join me in that, that uh, my opinion both that that's wrong. Then there's a second way that this is taken. And I think the reason for that is because of what follows. Unless somebody's born of water and of the Spirit, uh, they cannot enter the kingdom. And then verse 6 says, flesh gives birth to flesh, and Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And so some would think that when you're talking about being born of water, that's a fleshly birth. And when you're talking about being born of the Spirit, that's a spiritual birth. Okay, And so that's the thinking of some. And so if you follow that reasoning, then... Water equals natural birth, as if it relates to the flesh, and spirit um, relates to spiritual birth. Not, uh, now, water doesn't naturally point to physical birth here. The stretch has to be made to make the water mean something like, I imagine, I'm sorry if this is gross, but placental fluid, that that would be the water in born of water. I don't know that John has that in mind, but... And then the Spirit points to the supernatural birth. But I don't think that really fits the context. And so in my opinion, both of those are wrong. That when you're talking about being born of water, it's not the natural birth. And then being born of the Spirit is the Spirit birth. I don't think John here is contrasting at all. In fact, I think the key to understanding this uh, is that Jesus expected Nicodemus to know that. He expected Nicodemus to know exactly what being born of water and the Spirit means. And how would Nicodemus do that? Is God supposed to have shown him through some supernatural revelation? Or how would you expect somebody who's a teacher of Israel to know something that God was going to do? How, what's that? Prophecy? What's that? It's, it's already in the Old Testament. Both those are true. It's prophetic. And it's already there somewhere. Somewhere it talks about water and the Spirit. And so I think that's the clue to what this is talking about. Because he expects Nicodemus to know that the Bible is the source of spiritual truth. 
And I, this is a great principle for Bible study. Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, If you want to know what Scripture means, when we read Scripture, we need to understand that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so this is the, full of allusions in this passage to Ezekiel's prophecy. All right, I'm going to show you the verse here. I think I'm going to. Yes, just the reference. Aren't you glad for that? So you'll have to look it up in your Bible. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27. I would encourage you to turn there because I think we need to see this. Ezekiel is talking about a future day in Israel's history, a day that's going to be glorious. Okay, Ezekiel's writing during the beginnings and part of the middle of the exile. So he's writing at a time that's dark in Israel's history. And and uh, you'll remember Jeremiah kind of parallels this thought a little bit when he's talking about uh, the new covenant that he'll establish with the house of Israel. So that's really important is that they're looking forward. They're looking forward to a future day that's glorious in the middle of difficulty. And it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to obey my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. Did you see that? Water and spirit. Water and spirit. John, uh, and not John because this is Jesus. John is recording it. Jesus is saying it. Jesus is referring back to the prophecy of Ezekiel. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born of the water and of the Spirit. And he expects Nicodemus to know this because Nicodemus ought to be thoroughly acquainted with Ezekiel. In fact, I don't think it's a far stretch to say anybody in uh, Nicodemus's position probably had the Bible memorized verse for verse, word for word. All the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament yet but all of the Old Testament word for word. It still happens today. Eugene Peterson talked about going to Israel, and he met with a group of boys who were Hasidic Jews, and they were talking to them, and the the guy that was the leader of that group, he said if you start them off on any verse, they could quote the rest of it. Anywhere in the Bible. Man, it makes me feel like we failed. There's a devotion to that, to be able to finish the Scripture. And if Nicodemus is the teacher, surely being born of water and the Spirit would have triggered something in his mind. So what is he saying here? Water equals cleansing. And it may have been symbolized, but it wasn't accomplished through the water of baptism. So in the immediate context here in John... You will remember that we've talked about John the Baptist, and we're going to hear about John the Baptist again. And water baptism is a big part of that. Uh, There's a a baptism of repentance, and usually that baptism of repentance was something that would be associated with those who are Gentiles coming into the Jewish faith. But in John's time, uh, when he says the axe is laid to the root, he's saying, look, Israel, you've not been acting like Israel should, and so you need to you need to make a showing like Gentiles coming in to the faith. So we had people come and be baptized. Jesus was baptized, but he wasn't baptized because he'd ever sinned. He was baptized to be baptized as an example for the rest of us. 
Okay, so he was baptized. And then the others, they came and they were baptized as a baptism of repentance. And it symbolized for them the washing away of the old life, right? They washed away in a certain uh, symbolic way the old life. Water on the outside of us can never wash away sin. Okay, remember Lady Macbeth and Macbeth trying to wash the blood of uh, Duncan off of her hands, and she couldn't do it. And there's not enough water in the ocean, she says, to cleanse my hands from this. And you know there's not enough water in the world to wash away our sins. Come on, isn't that true? But Jesus can do it. He can do it. And so when this, uh, he talks about the washing of water, he's talking about how through what Jesus is going to accomplish, we can actually be cleansed of our sins. We can be cleansed, not because of physical water, but because of a spiritual washing that takes place through Jesus. That's ours. Okay? So when we come to Jesus, one of the things that we do is we repent of our sins and he washes us clean. Aren't you glad for that? Lord, forgive me for my sins. Be merciful to me, a sinner, and take them away. The Bible talks about, uh, in some different analogies for this, expiation, where he carries it away like a scapegoat does. He carries our sins away from us. And then we have the other picture of propitiation, where he, he takes away the wrath by taking it upon himself. So he forgives us of our sins, and he takes our sins away. Both those are apt pictures for what God does for us in salvation because of Christ. So we're washed clean of our sins. What does the Spirit have to do with that? We've talked about being born of water. That means to be washed in newness, uh, to to be brought into newness of life. But then the Spirit here, it says, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So here's what that's talking about. That's talking about now that you've been washed, you need my help to not get dirty again. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, this, this might bother some of us. I hope not. But what the Holy Spirit's primary goal in us is, is to make us holy. Okay. So think of the fruit of the Spirit. If you walk in the flesh, then there's certain things that follow. But if you walk by the Spirit, then there's fruit. And, and Paul says in Romans 8, they who through the Spirit put to death the mis- misdeeds of the body, they'll live. So we have to walk in the Spirit. And by walking in the Spirit, he helps us to live above law. Do you know what that means? That means that we don't have to look at a bunch of written rules. The Holy Spirit will help us to apply the Bible to our lives so that we live holy lives. He does that through his spirit. Because you know what happens if a little kid whose nature it is, a little boy, I was a little boy one time, you get them washed up and you know what happens? They go right back out into the dirt. Right? Anybody have a little boy that was like that? And little girl for that matter? Yep. So what you have to do when we're the same way with sin is you can be forgiven of sin, but unless the Holy Spirit is operating within us, we're going to run right back to it. And what we need is the Holy Spirit to prompt us to help to live better than we used to. And He does that for us. So unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the nature of salvation. 
The nature of salvation is to be cleansed from sin and being empowered from on high to live holy lives. That's the nature of salvation. And he's telling that to Nicodemus. Then he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Okay, it's natural. That flesh gives birth to flesh. You're going to see a, you know, there's a fleshly baby when a baby's born. It's going to have some resemblance to his parents. But then the Spirit gives spiritual life. And so now he's making a contrast between two things here, natural birth and spiritual birth. And I want to say something else. I want to say this often. When you you hear the term spiritual out in the world and people are using it in a bogus way, they've robbed that from us. Because that's a, that's a Christian term. Spiritual means of the Spirit. So if somebody says, I believe, I don't believe in organized religion, uh, organized religion, I just believe in being spiritual. You can, in your mind, and if you can do it with diplomacy, maybe with your mouth, suggest to them that there is no spirituality without the Holy Spirit. There's not. There's no real spirituality apart from the Holy Spirit because spiritual, the word spiritual means of the Spirit. All right, so Nicodemus asks, how can these things be, verse 9? Actually, we should jump back here a little bit. He goes on to say here, uh, you must be born again, verse 7. Don't be surprised at this saying. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it will, where it will, okay? Every, sometimes uh, we've interpreted this to mean that people who are spiritual are always coming and going, and because uh, the Holy Spirit's like that, and people have even used this verse to get out of their commitments and say, well, I don't have to make commitments or keep commitments because I'm a person of the Spirit, and I just never know where the Spirit's going to lead me. And if you're using this verse that way, you're using the wrong verse because this verse isn't saying that. This verse is saying something else. This verse is talking about some effect that comes from an invisible place. You can't see its source, but you can see its effect. Okay? You can't see the Holy Spirit, but when somebody's truly saved, you can see the evidence of it. That's what this is talking about. So this isn't talking about the unpredictable behavior of people who are driven by the Spirit. This verse means its source can't be seen, but its effects can be seen. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. In the context of John 3, it's talking about the supernatural nature of regeneration. When somebody's born again, it happens because a spirit who's invisible to the world has transformed a person or regenerated regenerated a person on the inside. So you can't see how the spirit regenerates, but you can see the effects in transformation. So this is referring not to be driven uh, to being driven by the spirit, but the effects of the four winds uh, in the valley of dry bones, bringing the dead to life. So we were in Ezekiel thirty six. So you'd expect Jesus to be preaching from the same context. So if you go to 37, you can see where the wind thing comes in. All right? So looking at chapter 37, I would encourage you to turn there. It says, uh, the Lord told Ezekiel to prophesy. He's now standing in the valley of dry bones. 
Uh, do you remember what's happening there? What are the dry bones? Just let's be real frank about it. What are the dry bones? Skeletons, right? That's, that's good. Skeletons, dead bodies. People who once lived but now are dead. Is that fair? Okay. Ezekiel's standing there. God took him there. Prophesy to the dry bones. So I prophesied as I was commanded in verse 7. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds. No one knows where it comes from. The the wind blows wherever it will. No one knows where it comes from. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. So what's he talking about here? A wind came through and it brought death to life. You see that? A wind came through. There was all the the sinew and the skin and the muscles and everything, but until they had the breath come, the wind come, they couldn't come back to life. Do you see how this is a picture for being born again? Okay, until the Spirit comes, the dead cannot live. Okay, until the Spirit comes, we cannot be born again. Verse 11 says in Ezekiel 37 here, verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel, They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back uh, back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord and I open your graves and bring you up from them. And I will put my, listen, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Do you hear that? I'll put my spirit in them, and they will obey my laws. Now it says in chapter 37, I'll put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your land, and then you'll know that I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. So when he says here, uh, the wind blows wherever it wills, no one knows where it comes from or where it goes, but you can see its effects. This is talking about Ezekiel 37. So this, these are the prophetic... Uh, origins of these things that Jesus is saying. And here's something kind of fascinating. In both Hebrew and Greek, the same word is used for spirit, with capital S, the Holy Spirit, spirit, small s, wind and breath, ruach. And then in Greek, it's pneuma, spirit, spirit, wind, breath, the same word. So when it's talking about the wind, there's a there's a play on words that's being being done here, this uh, so it is with the Spirit of God. The, the wind uh, blows. No one knows where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I'll put my Spirit in them, and they will live. So this is what uh, Jesus is talking about. So you'd think Ezekiel would be illuminated, but he asks a question in verse 9. How can this be? How can this be? That's the question. Okay, how can this be? 
And probably here, uh, Jesus answered this question, or excuse me, Nicodemus's question doesn't just mean something like, is this possible? But more like, how is this possible? Or maybe even better, how is a person born again? Say, for example, me. How is a person really born again? Like, you're telling me that a person needs to be born again. How does that happen? How does a person get born again? Okay, can you see Nicodemus saying that? I might have said Ezekiel a moment ago. I meant Nicodemus. Can you see how he would be saying that? So Jesus brings another illustration in. Right after he says, I'm trying to talk to you from things that you relate to. And then you can draw the spiritual application through analogy, but it seems like you're not getting it. That's what he he seems to be saying here. He goes, are you Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you still... But still, you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Okay. Do you see what he's saying? Is I've given you simple examples, but if I speak to you on spiritual terms, you'll have no way to even relate to that. So he's bringing in born of water and of the Spirit and using the wind as an example. And then he says in verse 13, um, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? He's jumped now to an older uh, passage in the Old Testament, Numbers 21, uh, verse 8 and 9. I may have that up here. Let's see. I don't have it, but you can take a look at this picture if you like. So in Numbers 21, 8 and 9, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So Israel's complaining uh, that there's not enough water, there's not enough food. They're complaining against Moses and his leadership. They don't, like, they don't like circumstances as the people of God. And so God sends some snakes in, and that people get snake bitten, and some people die. So then he sends a solution. He says, all right, I'm going to send a remedy that if you get bit, come and look at this, and then you'll be cured. Okay? So that's kind of odd, isn't it? We know later in the Old Testament that... People started to uh, idolize this thing, and they had to destroy it. Okay, So it was never intended to be the total goal. This was intended to be a symbolic figurehead for something that would come later. Okay. So looking, come look at this. The figure of the serpent on the pole is answering the question that Nicodemus asked, how can this be? So here is, Jesus is using a picture. Okay, People came, they put their confidence in God through this image, okay? That sounds almost idolatrous. Maybe there's a better way to say that. But as they looked at this, they believed God was going to keep his word, okay? So they looked at that and uh, put uh, their confidence. And so this is a picture, that the picture Jesus uses. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness and people came and looked to that, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So now Jesus is saying something like this. If you want the salvation that I've talked about, you need to come and look to me. I'm going to be lifted up. And that event is going to be the event through which you're saved, through which you're healed, through which you're delivered. Does that make sense? He's equating his death in a symbolic way with this figure. I've never seen the image drawn like that. I always pictured the serpent wrapped around the pole. This looks like a cross, right? So you can see in Jesus, when he died on the cross, it probably wasn't a small T. It was probably looked more like a large T. That's the way they built them. So he's telling us the way to salvation is you look to him. You look to his death. That that through that and and his resurrection, you look to him and you believe and you'll have life in him. Okay? So what a what a great picture for us as he's illustrating for uh, Nicodemus a few things. That's the end of the conversation. Is uh, Jesus saying those last things to Nicodemus, showing him what that looks like? But John picks up with some commentary in the w- most well-known verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. This is a continuation of the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, because it says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life." Okay, this is commentary. Uh, what God sent Jesus into the world for is what verse 16 is about. To do this very thing so that those who believe in him should not perish. You can be born of water and of the spirit. You can have the spirit give you new life, but it comes through looking to Jesus. We don't look directly to the spirit. We, looked, we look to what Jesus has accomplished for us. You can't have spiritual life apart from him. Some would like to jump, fast forward, let's let the spirit do his thing in our life. But you can't get there unless you go by way of the cross. Come on, are you with me on that? Okay. And when Jesus went to the cross, you know that the symbolism that's there, the same symbolism there is that um, Jesus was taking our sin upon himself and by virtue of believing that he was going to deal with our sin and our judgment himself. Okay. It's not necessary. Some Bible teachers have said Jesus took on the nature of Satan I don't see that anywhere in Scripture, and I think that's heretical. Jesus didn't take on the nature of Satan. The Bible says that Jesus took our sin. He took our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. He didn't take on the nature of Satan. He took our sin upon himself, and he bore it as a sacrificial lamb Okay, to the cross so that as we look to him, we can, be, we can be saved. Verse 17 tells us what God, what didn't God send Jesus into the world for. That's a complicated sentence, but I couldn't think of a better way to communicate the meaning. Because if I said it the other way, it would have said, why didn't Jesus? Why didn't God send Jesus into the world? He did send Jesus into the world. But he didn't send him to condemn the world. Are you with me? Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. Uh, condemn means both here, and you can see it in Romans 8, 1, to judge guilty and liable to punishment. You're guilty because you're guilty. 
you're liable to punishment. Jesus came to redeem. He didn't come to condemn. So he's telling us he didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 19 talks about what keeps people from coming to Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I'd like to focus for just a couple more minutes here on on verse 16, and then we'll draw this all to a conclusion in a real hurry. Okay, I've got like two paragraphs. Can you endure a hot night uh, at church on Wednesday with me? So what happened? Why did Jesus come into the world? He came uh, that we might be saved. I'd like you to notice here, uh, God so loved the world. I've tried to make this point because I think too often we look at um, love emotionally. And I think what John is saying here is that this is uh, the highest word for love. This isn't necessarily the emotional. This is a a love of the will, a love of action. God does emotionally love us, I would argue. But I think uh, as important to that and probably more important for our definition of love is that love is an action that draws deep from a commitment to us. It's not so concerned with feeling. It's more concerned with what's in the person's best interest. And so when it says God so loved the world, the word so there doesn't mean so much. I think that's implied by the rest of the verse. But when it says so, it's saying in this way God loved the world. That's really important because we tend to think of God's love as this emotional thing, and what we're seeing is that it's an objective fact in the cross that God loved the world. Same as Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The New English Translation translates John 3.16 this way, For this is the way God loved the world. It sounds like it's taking the emotion out of it, but it's not. This is telling us that objectively God made a decision that he was going to love the world by sending a cure, Jesus, to die for our sins. He gave his one and only son. New Living Translation, this is how God loved the world. And so when you see so in there, so means in this manner uh, in that particular case. So uh, think of this. In uh, Genesis 1 and following, it talks about the creation of the world, right? It says, God did these things, and then he said, and it was so. It was so. It was like this. It was like this. So here means like this. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. One more word here I think that's kind of cool that I think we ought to know. Um, we have here, God loved the world so that he gave his one and only son. We have only begotten and KJV and some other translations. The word for that is monogenes. Okay, you could probably see mono mean, meaning one and genes, uh, kind. And it could easily spring from mono only and genos, kind or race, meaning one of a kind, unique or the like. So when we hear God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Uh, we're talking about his one-of-a-kind unique son. Okay, You and I are sons and daughters of God, but we're not sons and daughters in exactly the same way that Jesus is. Okay, Jesus is one-of-a-kind. Okay, Hebrews eleven seventeen gives us an example of that. Isaac is said to be Abraham's monogenes. How many children did Abraham have? 
Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. Okay, he had many, many sons. In fact, uh, we know that already by the time Isaac comes along, that he's already had one son, and what's his name? And then afterwards, and this is even after Sarah passes away, Abraham has a whole, uh, as D.A. Carson puts it, a fresh packet of progeny by Keturah. And you can read all about them. One of them is Midian, who's not Israel's greatest friend in the future. Isaac, however, is Abraham's unique, special, and well-loved son. So Jesus is a a one-of-a-kind, and I think we need to keep that in mind. This is... This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. If you're concerned about it losing the effect of how much, this second part of the sentence picks that up. He loved us. He, he loved us in this way that he gave his one and only son. I mean, the weight of the verse tells us that he loves us. He loves us a lot. Are you with me? But also, we can't lose the fact that he loved us in this way. That's a particular kind of love, and that's really important. All right, I think we've said most of what needs to be said here, but I would like to take us through the rest of the commentary on what John says. It tells us in verse uh, 19 what keeps people from coming to Jesus. Look at verse 19 with me. Um, sorry. This is, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does not... Uh, does evil, hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly, it may be seen plainly that what they have uh, have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, so here he's telling us the reason why some come to Christ and some don't is that some people love their sin too much. And that if they come to Christ, their sin will be exposed for what it is. And they don't want that. So they choose to live in darkness instead. Okay? I said to hold on to a fact about Nicodemus at the beginning. You remember what it was? He came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night. Okay? John is telling us you can't be, a, you can't be an after-dark Christian only. You've got to live for him in the light. So he's challenging people to make their commitment, not just be mental assent, but true dedication. When you really look to him and keep looking to him and fix your eyes on him, he transforms us. He, bor- he borns us of water and of the Spirit, right? It transforms us. It changes us. These things are true of being born again. First, it's a received life. It comes as a gift. We can see that here. God gave his son. It's a, re, it's a received life so that we could have eternal life. The second thing that born again means is that it's a miraculous life. It only comes through a supernatural encounter with God by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. You with me? Supernatural. We don't just start acting Christianly. We have to have a born again moment where a supernatural thing takes place in our life. We're, we're regenerated is the theological word. Third thing is, it's new life after the old life. If we go back to Ezekiel, son of man prophesied to the bones, the dead bones came to life. So this being born again is new life after the old life. That means we've had an old life, but we now have a new life. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. 
Okay? And then it's a cleansed life. We have to be washed of water. That means that he forgives us of our sins and our life is clean before him. We have to walk in that cleanness. And I would suggest you have to maintain cleanliness before him. That's why it says in James, James is written to Christians, but it says in James, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Weep, wail, and mourn. That's written to Christians, that we have to keep short accounts with God and keep cleansed before him. We can't, we can't continue to let sin build up because the Bible talks about sin piling up for the day of judgment. Finally, it needs to be a spirit-led life. Okay, spirit-led life. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to live. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to keep my commands, the focus of which is the Holy Spirit leads us to holiness. Merrill Tenney says this as a closing remark. God's mysteries are not the heritage of the learned and the moral or the religious simply because of learning, morality, or religion. They're the heritage of the spiritually transformed. It doesn't matter that Nicodemus knows more of the Bible, that he's in a high religious place, that he has a lot of learning, what matters, or even that he's moral. What matters is that he looks to and believes in Jesus. That's salvation for us. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention. We went three minutes over. Can you forgive me? I'll try to borrow from Sunday morning's sermon. All right. Why don't we stand? Thanks uh, again. Lord, I pray that you help us as we have looked at this conversation about salvation tonight and this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus, that we might understand the depths of what you're trying to do in us. We thank you for washing us with the word. We thank you for putting your spirit in us. And I pray that you help us to appreciate everything that salvation means, that a supernatural God has loved us enough to come and do a work within our world that transforms us and to give us the Holy Spirit so that a supernatural thing takes place and we're given a new nature in you. Praise you, Lord. Help us to live in light of the truth that your spirit lives within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.